Welcome to the Inspirational Australians podcast, where we chat to people making a difference in their communities and in the lives of others. And here is your host for today, Josh Griffin. Thank you, Annette. I'm very excited to speak to our guest today, Michaela Seymour who's in Queensland. But before we get started and bring Michaela on, just wanted to acknowledge that I'm recording on Bunurong Country today and acknowledge the elders past and present and emerging. Michaela's is somewhere very different to me in Queensland, which is experiencing some pretty extreme weather at the moment. So we're definitely keen to ask Michaela about that. But the reason I'm excited to speak to Michaela, who is our guest for this weekly dose of inspiration, is because Michaela's committed to rural health outcomes and not just here in Australia, but also in Papua New Guinea. So very excited to hear from Michaela. I've never been to Papua New Guinea to hear what that's like, to hear what it's like working there and and then back in Australia. And Michaela, you'd have probably a lot of great insights into just public health in general at the moment in a time that I think people have had that term public health more, more than ever in the last few years. So Michaela, welcome this morning. Thank you so much for having me. And yeah, absolutely. Your response is very similar to, I think, a lot of the streets of obviously being our closest neighbour. You can see, you know, when you're in the Torres Strait, you can see Papua New Guinea and, and the same thing from a lot of areas I was working, I can actually see Australia. But lots of people here, yeah, have, haven't been um, and don't know a lot about it. So it's a very interesting place to work. Yes. Well, I'm going to show my ignorance because I've been to Vanuatu, but I don't even really know if that geographically is that close or is similar in terms of the, you know, the lay of the land and that kind of stuff. Well, no, actually, so Papua New Guinea is, is literally at the northern tip of Queensland, so, so very, very close to us. So, you know, the, the joke is that it's about four kilometres of canoe ride to get there. In pre-COVID, there was a lot of crossing of that, that zone, the traditional border crossing. So yeah. we share a lot of culture and we share a lot of history there and a lot of health background as well. Whilst it's closest neighbour and um, culturally uh, somewhere that we're really close with from a health perspective and, and for someone like me, it's really interesting sort of breaching or, or trying to work with that zone in between two countries with very different health systems, yeah. but people that are, are basically living in one area. The the imaginary border doesn't really exist when you're crossing the canoe, when you're family, when you have an auntie in the Torres Strait, but your uncle's Daru or Mabaduan is, is just across the border in PNG. There's no real border. The communities there are very similar. They yeah. they share the same culture and history. To them, there's no PNG in Australia. It's just family and, and traditional zones. So, yeah, really interesting. So you mentioned the health system is very different. You know, here we're used to, if we've got a problem, we can just walk in, see a GP, walk into the hospital and, uh, you know, it might be a bit of a wait, but we can get it all sorted. What is the health system in PNG like? It's so, yeah, again, very, very different. So, PNG is classed as a middle income country, but about 80% of its population is living in rural and remote areas. Yeah. Uh, so, for most of those people, um, if they're lucky, they'll have a community health worker who's someone with maybe a few years of training who may or may not have had medications and consumables dropped off um, in a timely manner. So, one of my jobs while I was over there uh, working in Western Province, I had a geographical area that was you know, about the size of Victoria, but wow. with a population that was completely dispersed. So, so very remote groups. And as the as the only doctor uh, as part of this health program, we had to work out how can we uh, service this population that's so spread out over such a big area. So I was really fortunate in that I had these awesome PNG nurses with me. So great midwives, family planning officers, water sanitation hygiene officers. And basically we'd go into these remote villages. Um, a lot of the time, 
we'd have to catch a small uh, eight-person plane. So, you know, those little uh, caravan yeah. planes with one big propeller on the front, and they would try and get us into some of these grass airstrips. Couldn't always get in. Sometimes it was just too remote and the, the airstrip just wasn't viable, but try and get into these grass airstrips and then walk to whatever community we were scheduled to go to and stay there for a week or two. But at the same time, it's a completely different kind of medicine. So you can imagine me coming from working in Australia um, and, and working up at the Sunshine Coast where if I need something, I call the pharmacist. And, you know, if I, I need something, I ask the nurses. That, you know, we have a whole storeroom that I could go and access to, to give the best care to my patients. Whereas now I'm somewhere where all I've got is two backpacks that I've packed full of medical supplies. And if I use them all on the first day, I'm going to have nothing for the next two weeks. Oh, man. So, yeah, trying to and work out you know, that, that really austere type medicine and how I'm going to look after patients with only what I've got in that bag. So a lot of the time it was primary healthcare because we would go, we try and go every six weeks. Yep. So we'd have a rotation um, so that we're trying to follow up with these communities. Unfortunately, in the past, a lot of programs or really good intentions or charitable groups have just gone in, you know, visited once and left again and no follow-up. So our group was a little bit different in that we were trying to go back every six weeks to make some sustained health changes. Obviously, that's not perfect. And, and a lot of these development challenges, there's, there's no perfect solution. Obviously, having someone on the ground 24-7 would, would be best, but um, this was kind of the best compromise we could come up with. So most of the time, it was more primary healthcare things you see your GP about. But then, of course, when you're living in a village for two weeks, you've always got your 2 a.m., you know, mom and labor and you know, <laughs> newborn babies and all sorts of, you know, because we're, we're living in a community where there's no electricity, no running water. People's yep. main fuel source is wood. So people will be chopping wood for their cooking fire and then actually take off a toe and you're the only oh, one there. <laughs> you've only got what's in your bags. So <laughs> doing the best you can. But I think as a doctor, it definitely tells you how resilient you can be and how much you can achieve with so little. So although in Queensland, we're so, in Australia, we're so used to having so many resources and, and so much available when, you know, you're sick and you go to your healthcare provider, there's a lot that can be achieved with just the basics. Yeah. It's nice to be reminded. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a good point. When you are kind of stretched and forced to think on your feet and and, you know, use what's in front of you. It's amazing what people can do. Yeah, I'm so interested in how you got started doing that in the first place. And when you first became fully qualified as a doctor, what led you to yeah, to pursue that type of uh, project? I got really lucky in medical school in that I was able to go to do a, a placement in Papua New Guinea in a, a small town called Kiunga that had a district hospital. As part of your study, when you're graduating medical school, you can you can do an elective in anything that interests you. So a lot of people would go to sort of prestigious universities, uh, overseas, friends that went to like Harvard and things like that. But instead, I went to Kiunga because I wanted to learn more about tropical medicine. And we were, there's a small group of us, we were really lucky that these public doctors were happy to supervise us and, and share their knowledge. And then after that, it kind of just kept going and then you know my intern year I was I couldn't stop thinking about it and I thought okay I'll go back and do some volunteering so I took my annual leave to go back to PNG and then after that it was you know the hospital asked me oh can you come back and help cover some leave and then next minute I've been back every year for five years and you know uh, (laughs) I was spending more and more of my time in PNG to the point where I got invited you know do you want to come and volunteer more permanently here and I Originally signed up for three months, thinking I'll go and help out for three months and yep. see how it goes. And now it's been two years wow. <laughs> <laughs> with a global pandemic thrown in the middle. 
So not not yep. what the original plan was. That's what's wild, isn't it? So you've been going, you've been traveling back and forth a bit, even through these last two years. Well, mainly just in PNG. So yes. many people that were probably overseas or, or young people that were trying to study and, and work on projects. The Australian governments are able to close their borders. So I, I did come home originally. It was just that waiting game of when I could get back again. Yeah. I got very fortunate in that I was able to take a working contract in Malaysia. That was really interesting to see that Southeast Asian culture, different to the Pacific culture, different mm. again to what we're used to in Australia in terms of medical care. But then I got permission to go back to PNG again, which was fantastic. But by the time I got to back to PNG, it was a very different ball game. So before I left, we were talking about things like childhood immunization. We we're looking at bed net distribution. We we're looking at malaria coverage. We were talking about things like water sanitation, how we get people to you know, distance their toilets appropriately from their homes. And, you know, those sorts of things that are, are usual to remote medicine and austere and development health projects. But by the time I got back, it was all about COVID. Luckily, the Pacific, and you would have seen in the news that the Pacific was relatively unscathed from COVID because of their remoteness. They were fairly lucky, but COVID was breaking out in PNG as I returned. So that was kind of that first wave, unfortunately. But in those really remote communities, it was kind of, if you lived in a city and you could see people getting sick and you could see um, the results, it, it made a little bit more sense. But if you lived in a really rural and remote community, it just didn't mean anything to you. But we, we kind of acknowledged that we had this, this time frame where we needed to protect these remote communities before COVID inevitably came. You know, trying to explain to people, you know, how, how do you get people to wash cans when there's no soap, when there's mm. no running water, when you don't know if the water's clean. And if you only have, if you've got a water shortage or you live somewhere where you don't have water security, you're going to save that water for drinking and cooking. You're not going to use it for washing your hands. Yep. So a lot of the messaging that we were seeing in Australia just made no sense to these remote communities. So social distancing, what does that mean when you live with 20 family members in one house? Because most mm. of your lifestyle is outside. Social distancing didn't make sense. Hand washing was difficult. And then mask wearing was just non-existent. So it, it was really tricky for us to try and come up with innovative ways to educate people about the threat that might be coming their way. Um, because these, these groups were nowhere near a hospital. So if they went into respiratory distress, there was no way that they could get the oxygen or assistance or medical care that might save their lives. So prevention was key. We then got access to the vaccines and it was very, most of those were generously donated by Australia as a, a major supporter of the vaccine program in PNG. But the problem we faced, and I think it was really difficult for people back here in Australia to understand, is a lot of the rhetoric in the media was just give more vaccines, just give more vaccines. There was never a shortage of vaccines but in a country where they have so many other problems, when you know family members often die of malaria, tuberculosis, yep. other infectious diseases, there was a bit of scepticism about why was there a vaccine for this when there's no vaccine for HIV? Why is there a vaccine for this COVID threat that we can't see, but you won't help us with malaria medications that we're always running short on? There was a healthy amount of scepticism that we had to work through. So it was kind of this heartbreaking situation where, you could see the threat in Port Moresby in urban centres where people yep. were getting really sick from COVID. We had these really remote communities that were sealed off from it, but for how long? You know, the clock was ticking. It was only a matter of time until someone got there with the illness and, you know, what was going to happen when there was no medical care. And we had something that could protect them, but, you know, 
it was a really good test of health education and engaging with the community and working through concerns. And it really, it really pushed us to our limits because at the same time, you you know, it's not our job to force anyone to get vaccinated. It's a personal decision, but it's really tries you personally when you think it's something that someone should do, but you know, they're working through it themselves. I, I think the other thing people didn't appreciate maybe in Australia when they were saying, just send more vaccines to PNG, trying to just explain what a vaccine is. So although people knew that children were getting, you know, shots, um, injections, when we tried to explain, well, it's the same as the childhood vaccines, realising that actually people didn't understand what they were. So a lot of people had grown up seeing children getting shots and just thought, oh, it's because our kids are sick all the time, they're getting shots of antibiotics or they're getting medical shots. So they didn't actually understand what a vaccine was, what an immune system was, um, that the health literacy was was very low. So we were sort of had more challenges and barriers maybe than, than were faced mm. in Australia. And that yeah. comes back a bit to what you were saying about the importance of health education. You know, yeah. perhaps that wasn't clearly conveyed enough historically that that's what these vaccines for the kids are doing. You know? Yeah, and you just can't make any assumptions about people's knowledge. So it was really eye-opening, I think, for our team. So even though they were Papua New Guinean, obviously these were health workers that had gone to university and had a good understanding, yeah. and we, we sort of assumed that people were on a certain level and then COVID really opened our eyes to, to what was really happening, I guess, in some of the communities with their health understanding. Yeah, no, it's so true. I just had to ask you, made a little note. This is very grasshopper thinking, so I apologise. I'm just jumping back a bit. One thing I wanted to ask you about is you were talking about the pilots landing on these tiny little grass airstrips. Firstly, were they even airstrips or are they just, you know, little grass paddocks that you're landing in? Great question. So I'm not a pilot or an engineer and I'm so thankful I'm not because when we started the program, we landed a lot of paddocks and fields that as the programs expanded and the engineers have become involved, we found out that we probably shouldn't have been landing <laughs> in some of the places we were. Oh, no. So there's these great, most of these pilots and volunteers that come to, 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 to just basically serve because these communities, there's no other way to get to them. You know, it's, it's a couple of hours on a small plane or weeks walking. And so to take all that medical equipment, you just couldn't physically walk there or canoe there. But that's the reality for a lot of these communities. They're completely cut off. If you need something from a small you know, town, you have to canoe or walk sometimes for weeks. And so these, these pilots are really committed to trying to get us in there because they knew the need. And, and when there's medical emergencies, they're the ones that have to go and try and pick up patients if they can at all. So they, they were really committed to getting us in there. But in retrospect... <laughs> Yeah, don't don't tell my mum type stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so, Michaela, I wanted to ask you as well about the Project Yumi Bush Doctor initiative and uh, something that you founded. Can you tell us like when that came about and and kind of what it is? At this stage, I've been going back to PNG a couple of times, and I found there was this disconnect, and that there were lots of people, especially health workers in Australia, who wanted to help these rural clinics. And there was a huge need. So a lot of these rural clinics just weren't getting the things they needed to provide patient care. But I guess the, the problem was the intermediate, you know, how do you link the people that want to help in Australia with these remote clinics? So we, we just kind of, it wasn't a genius idea. It wasn't rocket science. We, we literally just thought, hey, you know, it was me, a couple of Australian doctors, a couple of Papua New Guinean doctors just being like, how could we make that happen? How can we get the help that is here that people want to give and want to donate? over there to where it's needed. So we just started really small and we 
partnered or we, we joined an existing group called Project Unique. They were doing some awesome stuff, sending basically school classrooms over to PNG. And we were like, hey, we want to do the same with medical care. So they took us on, which was awesome. And we unfortunately sort of COVID slowed us down a little bit in our plans because obviously shipping has been a huge challenge during COVID-19. We've seen from empty empty shelves in our shopping centres. But we, we have had some pretty great successes. So, for example, one of our, our main projects is something called Bush Babies. So in PNG, the average woman will have four to five children. In those rural areas, they usually have a lot more. And it's usually commonplace for um, women to deliver, do a bush delivery, that it's called, yep. which is basically what it sounds like. They go out <laughs> to the garden, they you know leave the village and they'll go to their babies, sometimes by themselves, and come back once it's done which I mean by themselves yeah yeah which is pretty shocking I mean it's it's terrifying especially when you know I'm about to turn 30 and I I just couldn't imagine the things that some of these young women have done this must be yeah very very scary but it's just sort of the cultural accepted norms the problem as well is that there's still a distinction especially in remote areas of you know men's and women's taboos so a lot of men just have no understanding of what's involved in childbirth and they just think oh women do it all the time so must be must be easy i mean yeah exactly i've seen two (laughs) firsthand and it's still the most impressive thing i've ever seen yeah and i think and it's funny that you mentioned that so one of the things we're trying to do in the hospital is get men to come in and be with their wives when they give birth and you know, some men are totally against it from that, that cultural background, but I think the younger men are getting more interested in it. And once they see that, I think they have a lot more respect for their wives. So something that we always try and do is involve the husband because, yeah, once, once they understand, I think it changes the dynamic. But what, what we were trying to do with our Bush Babies project was encourage more women to come for supervised delivery because we know the World Health Organization says for emergency maternal obstetric complications, about 90% of them can be dealt with with fairly low resource, very basic interventions. So if you could just encourage women to come for a a supervised delivery with a healthcare worker, the chances of them surviving childbirth dramatically increase. But saying that is easier than it sounds you know some of the the clinics i've had to do i've walked you know nine ten eleven hours in knee deep mud to get to villages you know up sheer cliffs or or the sort of thing where you're walking along and don't realize that that you know in between the trees is actually like a cliff face these these paths are treacherous so but by the time i get to some of these villages i'm covered in mud i i can you know And that's me just going with the backpack. And then to ask a pregnant woman, a nine-month pregnant woman, to try and walk, you know, a lot of the time even further than that, for days, if not, you know, a week, in those sorts of conditions, it's a big ask. Totally. So we were trying to look at what what can we do to try and support women on that journey to to try and get them the prevent, you know, potentially life-saving care they need, but make it sort of worth their worth their while. So one of the things we found was a lot of women, especially remote women, would turn up to the clinic but not have anything for their children. And that's understandable when you've come from somewhere where you can't just nip to the shops and buy things. There is no shop. You know, then you have to carry it all this way with a huge pregnant belly. You're not going to be carrying a big bag with you and you're going to have to carry your baby back. So the, the really simple thing that mothers really loved was just a baby bundle. So we were giving something that we knew was evidence-based that, you know, helps baby thermoregulate, so keep their temperature normal, helps with hygiene. We were giving, you know, just simple baby clothes that were donated here, you know, your, your nappies, your blanket, a towel, some hygiene products and underwear for mum. And people loved it. And the husbands as well 
were more likely to encourage their wives to go if they knew they were going to get a small gift. So it was just mind-blowing that something so small could make uh, such an intervention in this rural hospital that we were supporting. So we've now expanded that to three rural hospitals to support women coming in for supervised delivery, and we're hoping to continue that. So we'll see what happens. So many amazing challenges that we'd never think about. Yeah, it's so cool that you're not just coming in and saying, hey, you should do it this way, and change, as you said, changing the culture and the way that they've done things for so long, but just making those little improvements and coming, I guess, to them, what's going to be beneficial to them and, and help them the most. That's Yeah, it's fantastic. When you're not in PNG, obviously you're uh, back in Australia, in Queensland. What are you kind of doing in the interim when you're not over in PNG? That's a great question. So my hope or, or what the plan was pre-pandemic and pre-sort of being responsible for this area of PNG um, was to become a rural GP. So you can obviously tell from my story that serving rural and remote communities with low access to healthcare and and looking at ways that we can maximise the services that we offer safely with less resources, something I'm quite passionate about. So I'm actually heading out to some local Kinroy on Monday to start work out there, which would be exciting. So they've very graciously taken me on for a a little while until I can get back to PNG. Just going out there and and learning from the rural doctors out there, trying to get some skills that then I can hopefully um, transfer back again. So whereabouts is Kingaroy? It's about three hours northwest of Brizzy. So it's inland from the Sunshine Coast. So luckily they haven't got flooded out there, but I'm still a bit nervous about if I'm going to be able to get there (laughs) on the drive. So we'll see how we go. Yes. So what's it like where you are now? So you're kind of near the Sunshine Coast, is it? No, so I'm I'm in Brisbane. Oh, you're in Brisbane. Apologies. It's just been, I, I yeah, it's been pretty shocking. I'm I'm very lucky that I live on top of a hill, so I personally haven't been affected. But I was saying, you just can't drive anywhere. The, the roads are completely blocked off. The, the water is, you know, bus stops that you know are there that you usually catch the bus from. You can hardly see the roof of them. The the water started going down, but just seeing the amount of belongings that people are putting out on the street you know the, the flood damage the devastation you know the, the cars that are ruined it's, it's just yeah it's really heartbreaking and I think unfortunately these extreme weather patterns are probably something that's going to continue so for us here in Brisbane where we can get electricity and, and we can access services to come and help us clean up afterwards and you know we we can rally the community and, and have access to those logistics um, although incredibly devastating what's happened here we're a little bit more resilient to um, deal with the effects. So if you think about what's happening in our Pacific neighbours, if you ask people on the street, people, you know, you wouldn't say weather is a medical problem. Yeah. But in the past two years, I've, I've realised these extreme weather patterns do make a huge difference. So that the malaria outbreaks I've had to respond to due to inundation, flooding, the stagnant water that's left over afterwards, and then there's a malaria outbreak and then all the kids at school are off school, they're sick, they lose a year of schooling, which it, it just has huge consequences. For example, you know, even just snake bites. So when it floods in these rural communities in PNG, the snakes are flooded out of their dens. They're there in the houses. You know, people are getting bitten by snakes and that's a, a, a life-ending event if you can't get antivenom, which is not accessible because there's no fridges, because there's no electricity. So yeah. <laughs> you can see how the cycle continues. So Although it's been incredibly devastating here and heartbreaking for so many people, it, it does remind you that we're in a, a little bit of a better place to deal with the consequences compared to the, the communities that I've been working with that are also facing the same extreme weather events. 
like uh, for example you know just women are not able to feed their children so when when flooding like this happens they can't access their garden you know they don't yeah. have pantries full of food they only farm what they eat so if you can't access the garden you can't get to your food then you're going to go hungry it's interesting and i think unfortunately when we're going to have to deal with more of that and look at ways that we can make the pacific more resilient to these challenges yeah that is a huge challenge and it sounds like the right people are are interested in it you know your passion just really shines through michaela it's quite inspiring and i guess you know you mentioned that you had this interest and in, even in, back in medical school interest in that area so was there something in particular that sparked that for you that passion and interest in rural health and, and tropical health or was it just something that you discovered as you were kind of learning more and, and on your journey I always thought it was something I discovered as I went. But when you look at it in retrospect, I mean, I was I was actually born up in Cairns. So I think those early influences that you don't realise maybe, yep. <laughs> that you probably look back on and go, oh, maybe that had more of an effect than, than I thought it did. So no, when I started medical school, I had no plans to be a rural doctor. I had no plans to go and work in sort of development or, or health development programs. But it just sort of transpired that it was something that I, well, I think I'm, I hope I'm good at it, <laughs> but, but you know how you go along and you have these grand plans, you know, people starting out at uni, you always have this grand plan of what, what's going to happen at the end. And then you realize along the way that maybe you can make a greater impact doing something else. And it seemed to me that I was just more useful in this role than anything I had planned in Brisbane. That's really cool. You know, you had those connections and they, as you said, they must've been drawing you to it subconsciously even. Yeah, and, potentially. Uh, yeah. <laughs> The other thing you mentioned is you said, oh, hopefully I'm good at it. Well, you're an award-winning doctor, Michaela, so I'd say that's evidence right there. <laughs> good point, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, before I talk about the awards that you know, you've won through our association, how we've kind of come across you with the Seven Years Young Achiever Awards, can you tell us about there's some other accolades you've had, which I believe it was the AMA Doctor in Training of the Year a few years ago in 2018. What, what was that award for? So that's an award that's given by the medical community. So AMA's Australian Medical Association. And it was an award where junior doctors nominate and vote for someone. So at that stage, I hadn't moved to the PNG full time. And I guess I was still a bit unsure if, you know, am I doing the right thing or am I wasting my time here? Am I really making a difference? Is all this extra hard work, you know, on top of a full time job, is, is this really making a difference or am I just chasing my tail and really putting myself under pressure? But for not much gain. And then this, this award came around and to hear your peers, you know, recognize what you're doing, it, it was hugely motivating and I guess validating that, okay, maybe I am doing the right thing. You know, if, if they all want to support me in this way and encourage me in this way, then yeah, it, it was just fantastic. It was really, really nice. So it gave me a bit of support in the medical community as well with the projects we were doing with Project Yumi Bush Doctor. To, to help us launch that and connected us with people in the medical field that, that wanted to support rural Papua New Guinea clinics as well, which is awesome. I'm glad you touched on that. It is really special to know that, yeah, your peers are behind you and supporting you because, you know, we all face doubts and anxiety and imposter syndrome gets even the most impressive leaders and, and high achievers. So it is special to kind of have that backing and I'm sure that powered you on as well. Yeah, definitely. And it just gives you that extra motivation to, to keep going. You know, when you think you're tired and something like that happens and all of a sudden you feel quite renewed. So <laughs> it's nice. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I have to ask you about our awards as well. So the Seven News Young Achiever Awards for Queensland, we were stoked to present you with an award because for us it was a return to events last year in that lovely break in the pandemic 
in 2021. I think it was April, if I'm remembering correctly, or, or May. And you won a Health and Wellbeing Award, very fitting, of course. So uh, can you tell us what it was like being part of that, you know, firstly being announced as a finalist and then taking us through to the awards presentation? Yeah, absolutely. So I think sometimes, I imagine people in other fields feel the same way. Sometimes you get really insulated. So I think at that stage, I'd been really just medically focused and, and you know, blinkers on about what people are doing in the medical field. And then I came across something on social media about the Seven Young Achievers Awards. And I was just so blown away by all these amazing things that people were doing in other fields. And I was just reading about, you know, all these amazing things that, that people were achieving and entrepreneurs and business leaders and charitable groups and not-for-profits. It was just sort of like a whole other world out there. It was great. And I thought, wow, how awesome would it be to be in this network with this community of people? Kind of looking into it, and I sort of mentioned to a friend, I said, oh, have you seen what this person's doing? And, and you know, one of the, the award winners in 2020 was also involved with PNG but for a technology project. And we were having a look at that, and she said, oh, why don't you apply for this? Yeah. <laughs> so we thought, oh, you know, there's some pretty prestigious people involved, but there was a, a prize involved as well. And we thought we could do a lot with that money. Like if, if we got anywhere close to the finals, you know, that, that could be a game changer to really help us with our projects. So we kind of had that, you know, what do we have to lose moment. So we put together the application and we just thought we'd see what happened. And then, you know, we got semifinals, which was really exciting. <laughs> and then next to it was the finals. It was a really fun process as well. But more than that, also just learning about what other people were doing on the way. So it was a really fun night to be able to go to that in-person event night and sit at that table with everyone and hear their stories and also have their family there as well Mm. and and hear how they got to where they are and how, I guess, the community sees these, these leaders as well. So, yeah, it was really fun. It was really nice. So anyone that's thinking about applying... I encourage you to have that what have you got to lose moment because it's a lot of fun. Although the award was amazing, I think the process was probably more fun. Like just seeing everyone, seeing all the applicants, reading about everyone, going through the rounds. Yeah. Yeah. It was it's great to hear, Michaela. And, you know, it is human nature to kind of sometimes pause and think, oh, but what if I don't win? Then it will be a waste of time. But as you said, we definitely encourage people to apply and kind of not have that in the back of your mind. Just think about the benefits it could do in it. We have heard from others as well that it actually can be quite an interesting process to reflect back on what has happened and actually write that down in a form because sometimes the only time you might do that is in a resume. But this is much more personal writing rather than a resume style. So that's great to hear that it was really enjoyable for you. And we actually just recently held our first event in Melbourne for a long, long time. It was amazing to be back and just hear, as you said, hear those stories, see the family celebrating people. And it's really special when it kind of, as you touched on, that you were really supported by your peers, we felt affirmed that what we're doing is uh, great and we were happy to be back doing it, that's for sure. So Michaela, we kind of answered this a little bit in some respects, but kind of what's next on the horizon for you? I know you're about to head up to Kingaroy and you mentioned you've got hopes to go back to PNG soon. Feel free to answer that in, you know, in the short term and maybe even what's uh, longer term kind of in the pipeline perhaps. Yeah, great question. So <laughs> I guess the correct answer is I need to finish off some training that I've got scheduled for rural and remote medicine. But I think, as you probably realised at the interview, my heart is definitely in the Pacific and, and getting back to PNG. So it, it looks like I'm probably going to be going back to assist with the, the COVID program. So as the world opens up, unfortunately, these small nations, or also smaller than Australia nations yeah. who have been maybe protected by isolation are going to become less protected by their remoteness. So 
I expect that we're going to see a few more outbreaks in the Pacific. So hopefully that that job's going to involve creating resiliency or preparing for those eventualities. But I think my heart is definitely in health development and staying in the Pacific and working on health systems that increase health equity. So that, that means improving access for all people in the Pacific to the basic health needs that sometimes we take for granted here in Australia. So just because I was born in Cairns and someone was born just a few kilometres north, you know, I have access to paracetamol when I need it, to antimalarials. You know, the injustice of geography, that why does the person a couple, a couple of kilometres north not have the same access? So really working on levelling the playing field and getting basic healthcare access for everyone in the Pacific is, I think, where my long-term future is going to be, yep. <laughs> hopefully. What's something else uh, that draws you there? Because, you know, I know that obviously you have those, these passions about helping people, but, you know, the people must just be beautiful and the, and the culture must be amazing to her for you to have fallen in love with that place so much yeah definitely it's very complex very interesting culture there's definitely challenges treatment of women uh, is, is a huge issue and sorcery related violence is, is a huge issue and and things that there's some amazing Papua New Guinean female leaders that are trying to address these problems but I think there's a lot that we share that I think again like like I said right at the start of the interview I mean our geography our our history. There's a lot that we share in the Pacific that I don't think Australians are as aware of as they should be. I mean, Definitely people, me. yeah, well, sure. people, I wasn't aware. People, people in PNG are very aware of Australia and our politics and what's happening in Australia, but I don't think we see the same thing in our media or we don't have the same discussions over dinner about what's happening in Port Moresby as they do about what's happening in Canberra. Yeah. So I think it's it's one of those things where. You know, as Australians, we love to travel. We love to see new cultures. We love to see new places. But going to PNG, it's not that different from home. So it's, people are very welcoming and they understand Australian culture. And it's quite uh, easy to work in, in that context, maybe, or a little bit easier. And, and you feel a little bit more that it's like home. Um, yeah, yeah, for sure. I guess one of the last things I wanted to ask you was we found out that you're a very inspiring person. But what is it that inspires you, Michaela? Oh, well, I think I definitely draw my inspiration from the people around me. So that's why being involved in something like this was really fantastic because you, even when you, you lose sight or, or maybe feel discouraged, seeing other people achieving and, and knowing what's possible is really inspiring. So I think we all, we all feel inspired when we have successes and things go well. I think the challenge is finding inspiration when we're feeling maybe more down or yeah. a lack of motivation, tired. So seeing other young leaders having their successes and sharing their story is really inspiring. So I think this things like this podcast is really helpful to hear people's stories. But also just like you said, when, when people apply for the award and they reflect on what they've achieved already, realizing that it's usually a lot more than you thought. And especially if you talk to other people and ask them to help with your application, you realize that you're you're actually doing quite well so yeah in, in terms of drawing inspiration it's definitely from the people around me and people like the young leaders that's a great answer thanks for taking the time to help spread the story of the important issues that people in png are facing make people like me aware of just how close we are you know i didn't realize just how close it is geographically to australia kilometers that's amazing for helping give us that uh, that bit of dose of inspiration michaela before we head off is there a way that people can kind of follow your journey and and keep them you know, on top of, of what's happening? 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, so Twitter's probably, if you're medically minded, follow me on Twitter. So that's Nick594, it's not very exciting. <laughs> but otherwise, yeah, please feel free to reach out to me on social media, LinkedIn platforms. I'm very accessible, especially if there's people that are looking at doing projects in PNG or already have things existing there that they want to talk about or other Pacific islands. Yeah, love to chat, um, especially for, for people in the health or development fields that are looking at work in the Pacific. I love to connect. Wonderful. We'll put those details in the show notes so people can easily get in contact with you. Michaela, thank you again for spending some time with us today. Thank you for having me. It's been great. I hope you enjoyed that interview. If you liked it or any of our other episodes, it would be great if you can rate and review the Inspirational Australians podcast. It really helps us out. If someone you know needs a little dose of inspiration, why not let them know about this podcast? And if you haven't already, make sure you're subscribed so that you won't miss an episode. Join us each week as we talk with ordinary Australians achieving extraordinary things. You can always head to our website at awardsaustralia.com slash podcast for more information and details on each guest. Now, before we go, I'd like to thank Annette, our producer. Here's a fun fact. Annette is my mum and our other host, Jeff, is my dad. This podcast is brought to you by Awards Australia a family-owned business that proudly uncovers the stories of people who make a difference for others. We can only do this with the support of our corporate and not-for-profit partners as they make our awards programs possible. So do you know someone making a difference? If you'd like to recommend someone to be a guest on the podcast, get in touch through our Instagram page, inspirational.australians. Or maybe your business might like to sponsor the podcast or get involved with the awards we run. Head to our website, awardsaustralia.com, for more details. Until next week, stay safe, and remember, together we make a difference. Thanks for joining us today on the Inspirational Australians podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening and have been inspired by ordinary Australians achieving extraordinary things. So it's goodbye for another week. Remember, together we make a difference.